Amen. All right, how many of you know who Uncle Rico is? Yeah, Uncle Rico. He's one of my favorite characters. I'm growing this mustache in honor of Uncle Rico. Um, Uncle Rico is a, a, um, he's a character in Napoleon Dynamite who uh, is trapped, locked in the 70s. He's locked in the glory days of when he was in high school and played football. And he is, uh, he's still, as a 40-something-year-old man, he's still setting up the video camera to take footage of his throwing motion so he can work on his, his quarterback skills. And if you've seen the, the movie, he's awful. <laughs> he's, he's terrible. Um, and uh, this film leads to one of the greatest dialogues, I think, in, in, in film, where uh, they're watching the film and Uncle Rico asks Napoleon and his, his, Napoleon's brother Kip what they think about it. And Napoleon says, this is pretty much the worst video ever, right? And I love this line. I use it often. Napoleon, like anyone could know that, right? But here's what Uncle Rico says while watching this video. I'm sorry, I, I love that line. Like anyone could know that. Uncle Rico says, oh man, I wish I could go back in time. I'd take state. Come to find out, Uncle Rico uh, could only take state if something actually happened because he wasn't even a starter. Um, he, was, he, he rode the bench. Um, and so he, he says later on in the film, how much you want to make a bet I can throw the football over the mountains? Yeah, coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We would have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Now we hear that and we laugh and we all maybe can relate to somebody in our, surely not us. <laughs> surely not me. <laughs> this isn't why I get so angry on the softball field. Um, <laughs> We can, we can relate to somebody like this, right, that, that, that just is stuck in the 70s in high school when if only something had happened, then they would have had glory, unmatched glory, that their life would make sense. You know, maybe you're thinking um, of, of the, the, the Bruce Springsteen song, right, Glory Days, where he sings about a, a baseball player and a, and a beautiful girl in high school and, and uh, says that, what we wind up doing is sitting back trying to recapture a little of the glory, right? While time slips away and leaves you with nothing but boring stories of glory days. Is that all we have? Is, is to try to hang on to some past event of glory, some past hope of glory, some, uh, some moment, and if you're like Uncle Rico, maybe it's a moment that passed you by. If you could just go back and, and change time so that things went differently, then maybe you would have glory. Or maybe if pop culture references don't do it for you, maybe Tolstoy's pop culture in his day, but now he's considered a classic. So here's what he says. My, my question that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without the answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in life 
that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. This is the question of Ecclesiastes. I think it sums up the the point of the whole book, actually. It's the question that he opens with. He opens with a question about the meaning of life. And now we're looking at, I've preached at least one other sermon here out of this, I can't remember. But we're looking at the end of the book. And we're going to see how he concludes this question of, is there meaning to life? Is all really vanity? And I think, if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, maybe, maybe his answer will um, surprise you a bit. So I ask that you please stand for the reading of Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 12, 8. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because when they, they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. The word of the Lord. Be seated. Father, we ask that you bless the reading of the word, the hearing of the word, and the preaching of the word. Lord, for the good of Uh, your great name, for the sake of your great name, for the good of your people this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so I'm gonna gonna do this in reverse order. I'm gonna start with the way this passage ends. And the way the passage ends, I think, is if you're familiar with with Ecclesiastes, is what you would expect of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Basically, he ends with the admonition to remember that your death is approaching, Verse 8 of chapter 11, let them remember the days of darkness will, remember, will, um, are men, will be many and that calamity are, and all that comes is vanity. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead in my mind. Remember that the days of darkness will be many, that death is approaching. 12.8, remember your creator in the days of youth before the evil day comes, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. 
And here's what I think. I think the, the, the ever-present fear, what, what Tolstoy is dealing with, this question that if we don't answer, then life makes no sense. And in his, his statement, it, it, it's not worth living, is um, what do we do with death? What do we do with the inevitability of death and the fact that our lives are on the slow or maybe the quick march toward the inevitability of death? Is that all there is to say? And I think it drives our trying to hold on to the glory days, our attempt to find something in the past that will uh, give us meaning, or it drives us, Ecclesiastes deals with this over and over again throughout, it drives us to try to find that meaning in what we're doing, whether it's pleasure or job or education. And he takes and works through all of these things. And whatever it is, he says, look, if you try to answer the question, that, that nagging question, by these things, then it's vanity. He wants us to understand, though, that we must remember that death is coming. That by time and age, there is no uh, avoiding it. By calamity, there is no avoiding it. Right, it's the, the first thing he says is that the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. There, there may be a time in your life where things are good and, and the sun is shining. And part of what he's saying is remember that there's a day coming. We don't know when, but there's a day for all of us coming when the, the sun and the clouds will be darkened again and the rains will come. Sorrow will strike us. Pain will strike us. We'll have a, a great, beautiful Saturday morning interrupted by the kick of a horse. There, there's, there's no avoiding the reality uh, that by calamity, we will see sorrow somewhere along the path. But also by time and age, by death. And he says, look, before these evil days comes, and he, he goes through this, he begins to talk about the person and, and the metaphor of a house in verse 3. He says, a day when the keepers of the house tremble. And what he's talking about there is he's using a house as a metaphor for a person. And he says, look, the keepers of the house tremble. What do you think of what a, 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 a human person, time and age causes to tremble? A person's hands. It's one of the first things I noticed on my father that was, it, it, it was hard for me to see to see his hands tremble in ways that my steady-handed father never did before. Strong, men's, uh, strong men are bent, right? Think this has to do with, a, maybe it's the back, maybe it's your legs, either or, both and, are bent. The grinders cease because they are few. You know, your teeth, I can't eat ice like I once did. Your teeth don't, don't hold up, right? Time and age. Your grinders cease. Your teeth cease because they're few. The windows are dimmed. Our eyes grow weary and tired, and, and we are not able to see what we once saw. Our ears grow um, old and tired, and we're not able to hear what we once heard. The door is shut. And then he says this, I, I love this. Um, verse four, one rises up the, at the sound of a bird. Yeah, you're laughing, some of you are laughing. How many of you have noticed that as you get older, 
you wake up at the least sound and you can't go back to sleep. It really stinks, young people. It's a sorry thing, especially if you love sleep. He's saying, look, now the sound of a bird, what probably would have once chirped you to sleep, what once early in the morning you could have ignored, once uh, I can just see myself as an 18-year-old rolling over with the pillow over my head, shutting out all sound and going back to sleep. He's saying, now you, you awake at these things. And so he talks about time and age and the toll it takes on the body. And then he says that along with this, it brings uh, fear, right? Verse 5, they are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Uh, and, you know, you have to think back especially to what this would have been like when this was originally written. To walk the streets, to walk the way would have meant treachery. It would have been uneven ground. And for the elderly, this, was a, and now became, this becomes a, an issue of fear, about seven years ago, I interviewed for a job in, in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was there in February, which meant there was ice everywhere, at least an inch of ice on everything. And as I was asking the, the folks there about the, the church and life in Anchorage, especially in the winter, I couldn't help but ask, what do, what do the elderly do in the winter when there's an inch of ice everywhere? And their answer was, the elderly leave. They don't stay in Anchorage because it's treacherous. And there's a real fear that comes with age of falling and hurting yourself. The almond tree blossoms, the blossoms of an almond tree were white. So he's saying, look, the, the, hair, the hair gets whiter. And then he uses the metaphor of a grasshopper. And when you see that, the, the grasshopper dragging itself along, you can't help but see what he's trying to communicate. Grasshoppers hop. They, 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 they're made to hop and they do so with great agility. And it seems like to me with, um, with the mechanics of it far outstrips their, their size and muscle mass. I don't get it. I've never studied grasshoppers, but, and he's saying, look, the, the effects of age are like watching a grasshopper drag itself along. The humans weren't made to be so. He's surely saying that. And he's surely pointing out the disconnect of the beauty of, of what it is to be a human or the beauty of what it is to be a grasshopper, but the brokenness of age and time to see the grasshopper dragging itself along. And he says, look, remember, remember before these things happen, before the evil day comes, before... Uh, uh, age happens and then he says before the silver cord is snapped in verse 6 and this is just a, a metaphors for death he has he has the metaphor of a, a silver cord that's snapped a golden bowl that's broken and a pitcher that's shattered and the wheel uh, broken at the cistern and what he's what he's saying is there there's a finality and he's calling us to remember that that before these things happen before death comes these things, the shattering and the snapping and the breaking of these things is irrevocable. It's, it's an uh, undoable reality. And that's what he wants us to see is there's a finality of death. And then he ends with the phrase that's uh, throughout the book, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, when he says all is vanity, what, he's not saying that all is meaningless. You've got to hear me say that. He's saying vanity is like a breath. He's saying vapor. 
He's, saying that there is, he's not saying there's no substance to it. He's saying that it's elusive. It's fleeting. And he's calling us to remember before the fleetingness of these things happen. And here's what I want you to see. Here's where I think maybe you might be surprised by Ecclesiastes and the message here. This all sounds very much like what you would expect if you're familiar, right? We understand Ecclesiastes takes this very real look at life. But here's what I want you to, to, here's how I encapsulate where I think he wants us to go with this. And it comes from a line from Braveheart. Uh, What Braveheart says is every man, William Wallace at the end of his life, near the end of his life says, every man dies, but not every man really lives. I think that the preacher here is trying to help us see that every person dies, but not every person really lives. And he's calling us actually to really live, not to, uh, certainly to deal with the, 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 the realities of death and the coming of death, but in doing so, to live. That's what I want you to see. Or if this helps you, uh, I, I think of Katniss Everdeen, who at the end of uh, the, the, the trilogy says this, when asked about her life, she says, I tell them that on bad mornings, it feels impossible to take pleasure in anything because I'm afraid it could be taken away. I think we hear the realities that are put forward here in in Ecclesiastes, or we see the realities in our own lives. We see the sorrow that's around us. We see the brokenness that's in us and outside of us. And we may find ourselves thinking like Katniss, which is I'm afraid to take joy because I'm afraid to take delight and pleasure in this life because I know it's going to be taken away and I'm afraid of that loss. And Ecclesiastes is actually calling us to something completely different. Look back at the way we started. Ecclesiastes is actually calling us to rejoice, to find joy. That, that remember before, he, the reason he says remember before, and he says it three times, he's saying, look, remember this, remember before, remember before, remember before, is because he wants us to find joy in this, in this life. And even in the knowledge that death is coming, he wants us to see that joy is a real thing. And look at how he starts. He says, joy is found in the simplest things in life. Life, light is sweet. And it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He starts with very simple pleasures. A goodness that we expect every day to greet us and that we often pass it by. We miss it. It's basic and it's essential. But he's saying, look, this is a sweet thing. It's a pleasing thing. It's a point of joy. And so I went through my own list. I don't know if this list will help you, but I I started thinking, what are the things like that for me? I think the sun is one of the things that he points out. And after living in New Mexico for seven years where there's 350 days of sunshine, I can just tell you that sunshine is addictive. It, it is such a, a glorious thing to sit in the sun and allow it to warm your skin and to drink a cup of coffee and to read a book and to, to experience the, the beauty of the sunshine day after day. And he's saying, enjoy it. It's beautiful. It's sweet. Or something a little more Waco. Um, I love springtime in Texas. It is, 
I, I'm so, I, I, there is nothing like the wildflowers in this part of the country. It is beautiful. The blue bonnets that line the roads are amazing. That, that, that he's saying, look, look around you and rejoice. Take delight. See the pleasure in the blue bonnets that grow here every spring. Or another one for me is an elk bugle. Have you ever been in the mountains and heard an elk bugle? It's majestic. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It stirs something within me. It makes me uh, uh, want to be out and, and chasing those things down. very uh, wild of heart, an elk bugle. Does anybody here know what a dead point is? A dead point is a climbing term, um, and it, it's, you know, typically when you're climbing, you, you, you try to keep all point, uh, at least three points, uh, two or three points of contact on the rock at all times. But you come to certain points where there's nothing to do to climb the rock but to leave the rock. To jump, if you will, from the rock, up the rock. And um, there's this point, this beautiful point, when you jump, where your body is no longer going up, but it's not going down. It's that point where you're, you've, you've hit the top of the jump, but you haven't started going down. And a dead point is, the, is hitting that hold at that point. It's beautiful. It's like the sweet spot on a bat, it's like um, playing a musical instrument and, and, and hitting the sweet spot in that. It's like uh, laying out for a, a ball and catching it. It's, it's, it's something that, in my mind, I can think of particular routes and particular days in my life where I hit a dead point. It's beautiful. And the writer is saying, these things are sweet and pleasant and pleasing, and they should be. How many of you can think fondly, fondly about the first time you held hands with the person you love? The beauty of that simple moment, the magic of that moment, the power of that moment, the simplicity of it. He's saying, these things are precious. So what he's saying is that a person is called to rejoice in these things. Look at this. In verse 8, he says, not just these simple things. He says, look, a person lives many years. Let him rejoice in them all. Let him rejoice in all the years, all the days of his life. I think we often take for granted and don't appreciate these simple things. Uh, this week was Violet, my, my three-year-old's birthday. And um, we had a party for her yesterday. And it was so fun to watch her three-year-old little mind love the presents. Like she just couldn't keep her hands off the presents. She wanted to open them. Um, as a matter of fact, we were told that she couldn't open the presents till we sang happy birthday. So she went into the presents by herself started unwrapping one as she sang happy birthday to herself so she could get to those presents. If you saw her when she came in today, she was wearing her pink crown that she got yesterday. She is so enamored with princesses and castles and dresses and beauty. And we tend to look at those things, uh, we often look at those things through the eyes of cynicism. And we think Ecclesiastes or the Bible might call us to as well, and it doesn't. 
says these things are beautiful. I love it and hate it, to be honest, that she wants me to read the Sneetches every night. Every night. You know, there's the, the sne- Plain Belly Sneetches and the Sneetches with Stars. It's a great story. She loves it. But she has a delight in the reading of it over and over and over again. All those days, they're simple delights, but they're right before eyes, and she's delighting in them. Let me just ask a couple of questions then. Parents, are you able to delight along with your children? Are you able to delight in your children? Are you able to see uh, the world, in a sense, through their wonder and participate alongside of them? I must confess that it often annoys me. I'm often frustrated by these things. But the delight and wonder of a child is part of what Ecclesiastes is calling us to. Spouses, do you delight in each other? Do you enjoy uh, holding hands still? Or maybe if it's not holding hands, do you enjoy sitting around and watching the sunrise, drinking a cup of coffee together? Do you take delight in each other? The elderly here, he says, look, no matter where you are on, the, on this path, rejoice in all of your days. I love the beauty of the fact of, of, of grandparents, right? Grandparents tend to rejoice in the craziness of a three-year-old better than parents do. But I think part of it is because they've actually bought into something of this reality, which they understand life is short and they see the beauty of the moment. He also says, look here, Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Young people. He's actually saying, find joy and delight in being young. Enjoy the benefits of youth. Enjoy the benefits of being able to run and jump and play. Enjoy the benefits of being able to um, grow in your knowledge of things. Rejoice in the good things of life. One of the reasons I think this is important and one of the ways I think we older folks get back to this is that we actually do live the glory days uh, to a point. I'll never forget one of my favorite parties, party memories, was a Christmas party here at Redeemer. And I remember Jeff was there and my wife was there and Todd Gibson and his guitar was there. And if you want to have fun, Get Todd Gibson and his guitar and start naming 80s pop songs and rock and roll songs and watch his brain come up with the tune, him start playing it, him actually remember the lyrics. And Jeff and I kept throwing songs at him, and there were other people in this. We kept throwing songs with him and singing along with him and having the best time remembering our youth. Remembering uh, the, the joys and the simple pleasures of being young. Look at what he says. He says, look, walk in the ways of your heart. Pursue, this means pursue the things that your heart desires. And I know that probably needs to be qualified, but I'm not going to. Pursue the things that your heart desires. This means, yes, it's infinitely practical to be an engineering major. But if you're an artist, maybe you should major in art. No, you should major in art. You should be an artist. You should pursue the delight of your heart. And parents, as much as you want your child to have a practical degree 
so that they can make the income that you think they should make when they get out and, and fulfill your dreams for them. By the way, parents, so much of what you think is your children's dreams for their lives is really your dream for their life. If your child is an artist, let them flourish as an artist. He's saying, pursue the desires of your heart. C.S. Lewis understands this in terms of our desires and pleasure. He says this, if I find in myself a desire, desire, I'm from Texas, (laughs) which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. So, so let, me just, let me just help you see what, what, we're, what this is saying here and what I think Ecclesiastes is getting at. Ecclesiastes is constantly talking about our idols. He's constantly talking about seeking life and fulfillment in job, career, sex, pleasure, whatever these things are. And he's surely saying that if you do that, it's vanity of vanities. But also what he's saying is the desires behind that are things that you were made for. That behind every idol, by the way, if, you, if you're sitting down and talking to somebody who's dealing with a struggle in their life, and, it's, and you get down to the idol underneath it, it's also imperative that you get down to the creational thing underneath that idol that says, look, you're seeking to find this thing met here, and that thing underneath there is good. It's right. This is just the wrong place to get it. And what Ecclesiastes is saying is, look, underneath these, these life and what drives life and the goodness of life is your desires and the things that you were made for. He also says, uh, he uses this phrase, the side of the eyes, right? There in, what is that, verse 9? I think he's talking about beauty. He's talking about understanding and seeing beauty. C.S. Lewis says this also, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all that beauty came from. He's saying, look around you and see the beauty, see the beauty in the simple things and then be driven to find the place where the beauty comes from. These two phrases here are certainly um, uh, given in the context of know that all these things God will bring into judgment. He's, he's saying, pursue this. I think this comes down to basically it's the same thing that Augustine says when he says, love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do what you desire. Follow the desires of your heart. For the soul trained in love, this is what Augustine goes on to say, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one that he loves and that loves him. We tend to think our desires are simply bad. What they are is often misplaced and misdirected. They land in the wrong places, but they're not bad. Remember, see, the reality is that what Ecclesiastes wants us to understand is that we have to remember in order to rejoice. We remember to rejoice. This is what Katniss says um, following that quote I read. 
She talks about being afraid of what could be taken away, and this is what she says. That's when I make a list in my head of every act of goodness I've seen someone do. It's like a game, repetitive, even a little tedious after more than 20 years, but there are much worse games to play. You see what she does? She says she looks around her and sees the good things around her. She remembers Remembering leads to rejoicing. Remembering, yes, that death is coming. Remembering that life is short, yes. How does that work? I, I, I use the illustration of, of grandparents. When you realize that life is short in a healthy way, you stop getting hung up on so many things that you really shouldn't be hung up on. You see the beauty in the simple things. You quit fighting to find your life and meaning and purpose in your job because you're, it's gone. You've seen that it, it will not satisfy. So remember death, sure. Remember that time and age will overcome us. But he says also this, verse one of chapter 12, remember also your creator. Remember your creator. I think this is um, just powerful to unpack. I think when we hear this, when we hear remember your creator, we think back up to the verse I just read in, in chapter 11 that, you know, pursue desires of your heart, but don't, don't, don't be confused. God's gonna judge you. And that's true. God is your creator, is the judge of all creation and all things. But it's such a small view of what it means for him to be creator. Part of what it means for him to be creator is that he owns you. Now this may sound a little harsh and a little stark, but let me, let me just uh, tell you what I mean by that. Ownership in, in some sense is, is what we're all looking for. We desire to be owned, to be um, owned by something. You think about Toy Story, the whole series is about the joy and the importance of ownership, Right? You know the top three things that teenagers say they wish their parents did? See if this sounds like authority and ownership in a teenager's life. Three things, top three things. They wish their parents would still tuck them into bed, sit down to dinner with them, and know where they are and set boundaries. What they're saying is they want their parents to communicate by their actions that they love them and they own them, they know them, they're for them. They are their child and they care. For God to be a creator means that he owns you. It means that um, his name is written on your, the sole of your shoe. Or the way the scripture said it is your name is written on the palm of his hand. He owns you, he knows you, he has you, he loves you. It also means, the fact that he's a creator means, and I think this is something we often miss, that God absolutely delights in his creation with a deep joy. You know, the most famous verse that we all, if we grew up in the church, learned very early on, for God so loved the world. God loves the world. He loves the blue bonnets and the daisies. He loves the sun and the moon. He loves these things. He delights in them. When he creates them and speaks them into existence, he sits back and says they're good. And when it's all done, he rests. And the picture is a rest of a king, but it's the rest of delight. The rest of one, I, I, 
Have you ever done this? Spent all day in the garden and then sat back and had your cool beverage, whatever it is, and just said, yeah, satisfied, delight in the day, delight in the work of your labors. G.K. Chesterton says this. I think it's beautiful and um, gets at what we're talking about here. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, daddy, right? Do it again. Read Sneetches again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. I think of giddy-up horsey. My knees just won't do it anymore. People are, uh, grown-up people are not, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes every daisy alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Isn't that beautiful to think about? The fact that God delights in his creation, the fact that he delights in the beauty of it means that he delights in you. He delights in you. He delights in who you are and what you are. He delights in who he made you and how he made you. So many of us think that what it means for us to follow God is to become something other than me. It's It's tyranny. God loves you. Listen to what Zephaniah says. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. Okay, here's rejoice. This is how we rejoice. We're called to rejoice and exult in in what's in your heart. Why? Because the Lord your God is in your midst, midst. The mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The fact that we're called to remember that God is our creator, we're called to remember that he owns us, he loves us, and that he delights in us, that he sings over us. The the image of Aslan when he sings Narnia into existence, the beauty of that image, to think about God singing over you. This means he loves you. He loves you. We're called to remember that God loves you for who you are, your personality, your gifts, your strengths, your weaknesses. Yes, he loves you. Every time I would, it seems like every time I would leave the house as a teenager to go out, um, my mom would always say to me, remember who you are and remember who you belong to. Ecclesiastes flips that and it says, remember who you belong to so that you can remember who you are, so that you can rejoice. Remember that God loves you and rejoice 
The passage ends with the, the refrain in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then the vanity of vanities. What he's, what he's getting to there is that at death, at this point of death, uh, decreation has come. The breathing in the nostrils of Adam is undone. The breath of life is lost. Uh, what was formed out of the dust in beauty and life is now back to the dust. And he, 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 he leaves us there in this. But I think even remembering the creator, he won't leave us there. And he doesn't leave us there later on in the, in the, in the book. I think what he's calling us to do is to remember that our creator is our recreator. He is the one who has brought salvation. He is the one who loves us and has entered the world. God so loves the world, and that means the cosmos, the daisies, and the blue bonnets. And he loves you so much that he came, that he sent his son, that he died for you. What he's saying is, remember your creator, because he will not abandon you to the grave. And the joy of your youth and the joy of your life and the joy of the daisies and the joy of the sun and the joy of holding hands and the joy of, uh, of a warm embrace, the joy of an elk bugle and the joy of you name it, a, a well-crafted piece, a, a well-written poem, a, a well-sunk putt, the joy and the beauty of all those things will be restored will be consummated. They will be made complete. And you along with it, when your recreator comes again to establish the new heavens, the new earth, the daisies, the blue bonnets, all of it. All of it. There is joy to be had in remembering both death and the delight of your creator in his creation and you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you do um, delight in your creation. Lord, help us to see that honesty, having a real eyes to see that death is coming, that life is short, uh, does not take away our joy, but steals us um, and presses us into that joy that by faith we seek a city whose builder and founder is God. Help us to believe it. Help us to remember. It's in Jesus' name I pray.